0: into the Capital Studio now with Colin Peacock with Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora, Colin.
1: Kia ora, Karen, yes, at the beating heart of the nation's capital, I'm right here.
0: <laughs> How come that sounds a bit suspicious when you say it like that? No,
1: I don't know, I'm just trying to big it up, make it sound more dramatic.
0: Uh, well, Brian called it a, a rugby catastrophe, but you call it a rugbypocalypse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was Hayden Donnell's term, he coined the term apocalypse. but yeah, it's like rugby apocalypse part six now, I think they've lost six tests out of eight. Um, yeah, you could make a podcast series about this tragedy, couldn't you? But every episode will be almost exactly the same.
0: yes another test another all black defeat and more strong uh, reaction from the media obviously
1: yeah but it feels a little bit like sporting groundhog day I think because all these results seem to surprise the pundits and the fans and it seems almost exactly the same opinion pieces and analysis with the same tone. You just change the name of the opponents uh, <laughs> and the, the pieces are the same every time the All Blacks lose. But what struck me this time was Argentina. Um, that, was, that was unexpected, uh, although um, Argentina has beaten New Zealand in the recent past. But the focus was just so much on the All Blacks' underperformance and the coach and all that stuff that's been written about ad nauseam, that it was kind of remarkable, I think, that Argentina was ignored. And what they did, winning on New Zealand soil, was, for them, historic. So after every game, for example, the Herald does this thing, uh, a player's rating article, and marks out of 10 for each player, but only for the All Blacks. You know, I think, if in this historic result, you know, why not... A list you know, the marks out of ten for the Argentinians who've done this historic thing. I think there's a bit of a flavour of that also in the way that um Sky's Justin Marshall introduced the game like this. Good evening, Grant. Welcome everybody. No, Heidi Matefano Kyota. Buenas noches to our Argentinian viewers. Well, both teams are rolling into this test match off excellent wins. There's huge anticipation as to how the All Blacks perform this evening.
0: You know, it's nachos. What's wrong with that? Wasn't that on everybody's mind here?
1: Well, it was here. But, I mean, having just greeted the viewers in Argentina, I think people who were having a Buenos Noches" and Buenos Aires or, or wherever <laughs> uh, would be thinking, oh, oh, thanks. So we're just here to make up the numbers. Or we just here to, to see how poorly or well the All Blacks before. I thought that was a bit weird. I suppose I'm picking on Justin Marshall a little bit there. But another thing that happens after every unexpected All Blacks result um uh, the, the, the main news publishers, Herald and Stuff, the two big news websites, they do a piece called How the World's Media Reacted, You know, always headlined like that. And it's always the same crop of very narrow kind of Anglo-centric um, uh, sources they go to. The, the same pundits from like the Daily Telegraph and the Times in London. They do Super Sport in South Africa, maybe, and a couple of the rugby writers from uh, the Australian papers. Why do we not have any word from what Argentina's uh, media were saying about it. This great historic win just simply wasn't there. So yeah, very I think it's time to retire that, how the world's media reacted uh, when it's just the same old sources.
0: Maybe the translation was too hard.
1: Argentina's media is in Spanish. I'm sure that's the problem, but I don't speak any Spanish. I did a little bit of uh, Googling and a bit of online translation. (laughs) And you could easily get enough for a little bit of colour that I didn't see, unless I missed it, that I didn't see in in the New Zealand media response. So, for example, uh, there's a major uh, paper in Argentina called Clarín. Um, They even, ironically, made news stories out of the overall reactions of stuff in the Herald, the stuff they could read. Uh, online um, and the, for example one of them cited um, a harsh editorial by Richard Nola from Stuff furiously questioning the decision to have supported uh, the coach in the midst of this crisis of results uh, after they won against the Springboks he said all the artillery points against the questioned coach they say and the rugby priests who supported him despite the results and there was also a kind of cute little story which I gleaned from Clarine and my dodgy uh, online translation, which was that someone had put a kind of whiteboard in the dressing room with in Spanish and uh, red marker. Remember this day, boys. It will be yours for the rest of your life. And when they won afterwards, the players did lots of social media dancing around this billboard. And no one knows who... Wrote the message if I've got the story right. So a cute little story there, just just not in our media because the focus was like, oh, the All Blacks did badly and we should have sacked Foster when we had the chance, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. And um, also in Clarine's coverage they had some video. Uh, this is from the ESPN channel in Spanish, you know, global sports channel, so ESPN Deportes, and this is their uh, commentary uh, on the decisive try on the night. <inaudible>
0: Hey, sounds like the Spanish version of ZB.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's much more fun than that, much more fun than Sky TV. And so in that little clip, I, I I thought I heard the word pulpo, which I thought was octopus. So good job I'm not on the translation, because I'm sure that's not right. But a couple of times in that clip, you had to strain to hear it, but their pronunciation of Christchurch is kind of hilarious. Christchurch! Or something like that. Um, so there, that sounded, they had a lot more fun than uh, New Zealand viewers did.
0: Uh, is the media and talkback backlash diminishing, diminishing yet? Uh, you know, It's no longer a, a shocking surprise for rugby fans yeah. that the 8Bs could lose.
1: Yeah, I think the pitch has definitely dropped a bit. I tuned into the sports talkback stuff the next day to see what it was like. And yeah, I think people are no longer quite as outraged. Maybe the fact that they appointed the coach, which was the main talking point, and took that out of the equation means people have just resigned themselves to it. But um, what was quite funny is some guy rigging up saying, you know, we we won't win the next World Cup. That's for definite. Write that off. It would be 12 years will have gone by, you know, before we can win the next one. And then someone phoned in straight away to say uh, that this is rubbish because we've got a, a Women's World Cup just within a couple of months. So, you know, we may well win a World Cup. Right here, even though you didn't hear much about it, uh, the Black Ferns beat Australia uh, last weekend, but was drowned out by another All Blacks defeat. But uh, that Black Ferns weren't actually prompted. This made me laugh. Uh, a woman called Sue uh, rang up to speak to ZB's uh, sports talk host Jason Pine to tell him this.
0: Um, bugger the All Blacks. What about the women? And I'm going from my allegiance to the All Blacks to the women. I'm
1: afraid. <laughs>
0: No, there's nothing wrong be- with that. So you don't have to be you don't have to have to choose one, to be fair. You don't have to choose one, but if you want to throw your weight behind the, the Blackferns, absolutely, because we've got a World Cup coming up. It's just part of the course though isn't it Colin that intensity around the All Blacks
1: Yeah but you, I just wonder if people can keep it up if they keep losing we, or whether we do get into a new mindset of maybe we'll win, maybe we'll lose not always expecting to win but uh, in the current listener there's an interesting reflection on this from the listeners, uh, sports writer Paul Thomas uh, he actually pings the media for this he says at times the feeding frenzy has been nauseating and he says it's an odd mindset that enables columnists and commentators to uh, talk about the mental health casualties in elite sport one week, and then, you know, heap this uh, withering contempt on individuals the next, uh, with reference to the All Blacks. And he thinks our, our tendency to take rugby ultra seriously is becoming uh, a national embarrassment. And he also pointed to the fact that uh, the former chief executive of the Rugby Union, David Moffat, has become the go-to guy for media for opinions on how the current rugby regime is performing and points to the fact that uh, he has some rather odd uh, fringe views of his own about the United Nations pact on migration, Um, Jacinda Ardern, uh, rather harsh views on climate change being a big scam visited on the human population. So he thinks that might put into context some of his opinions about sport.
0: On climate change, when's he had an opportunity to speak on that when he's been asked about rugby?
1: Oh, well, people have delved into his background because oh, he's got a bit of a profile. So when people are, you know, people have the radar out now, don't they, for people who have fringe and unusual views. So I guess the point Paul Thomas is making is, OK, his views on rugby, fine, but, you know, perhaps uh, if, if you're going to report the stridency of his views, he has some fairly fringe and out there views on on other matters that he he regards as kind of relevant and thinks the media should have pause before making him the go-to guy for comment. You know, on rugby, which is of course another matter. Well, we're
0: talking about fringe. Uh, the weekend before last, on Media Watch, you looked at the media raising the alarm about fringe and anti-vax groups mobilising candidates for local elections, and in some cases, telling them not to declare their affiliations. And there's been more on that in the media lately.
1: Yes, lots, and it's a bit like that David Moffat situation, where you have people with odd views standing for local elections. And the media have been pointing this out because you have groups, for example, like Voices for Freedom, uh, who had uh, been reported in the media as um, telling. People supporters to stand for local election, but not declare that they're affiliated to the group. Uh, So some in the media, for example, Stuff, particularly, uh, they have a whole section of their website now, which is about their reporters around the regions. Uh, Some even have videos of their reporters door-stopping candidates that they believe to have connections to Voices for Freedom or or other groups as well, and asking them about these these views and affiliations, trying to get it um, out there on the record. not just stuff, though, the Herald front page uh, on Monday, in fact, it was, had the uh, the fake judge who convicted the government of crimes against humanity in that Brian Tamaki-led protest you know, out in the lawn in front of Parliament. He turned out to be uh, the, the national manager of a, a whanau ora a community clinic who's been stood down as a result of the uh, media exposure of him doing that during the Parliament. And the Wairarapa Times Age um, has reported candidates in its region, standing for local government, have have controversial links. They put it on the front page with the kind of sinister um, picture and uh, the headline, Who is pulling the strings? So, yeah, I think what we're seeing is... The media are determined to highlight these candidates and determined to give their readers the opportunity to see if there are people with odd or fringe beliefs that have not been highlighted or not been drawn attention to by the candidates themselves. But there is a danger in this because um, you can still have odd views and there's there's nothing new about having odd views and maybe being involved in local government. It's happened before and it will happen again.
0: Has there been pushback on people being singled out like this?
1: Yeah, definitely has. In fact, that wider Upper Times age piece did become controversial because they picked out one mayoral candidate, uh, Tina Nixon. And the paper said she'd been um, promoted by a conspiracy website called Resistance Kiwi. Uh, But in fact, uh, their source for that was an anti-conspiracy theory group, Fact Aotearoa, which had pointed this out. In fact, what had happened was they didn't give Tina Nixon the opportunity uh, to point this out or enough of an opportunity. She'd merely shared a paper about the Three Waters, which is a a genuine, legitimate local government issue with this other group. And she isn't, in fact, tied to them. So there's a bit of unfairness there. And and possibly that story shouldn't have gone. Well, it definitely shouldn't have gone in print in the way that it did. So, um, So former Herald editor Gavin Ellis, for example, said there is a danger of some kind of you know witch hunting type action going on here if you don't give uh, a people to explain exactly what their positions or affiliations are and he said if you if you get some of these wrong conspiracy theorists and extremists will gleefully and irritatingly with some justification say the media can't be believed so he says uh, it's, it's something you've really really got to take um take seriously and and, and possibly just wait a bit before publishing the story, if you're not entirely sure. And I thought about that in the Sunday Star Times. They had a story about someone who's not standing for local government at all. She's the chief gambling commissioner. And it turned out that she'd written to the government demanding the halt of the vaccine rollout program with these weird claims about you know nanotechnology and the the COVID-19 vaccine. And uh, she has acted as a lawyer for Voices for Freedom and the group New Zealand Doctors Speaking Out with Science. And, you know, on one level, you know, she's a public servant and not standing for election. So, does this is this really fair uh, to out her uh, on the pages of a Sunday paper like this? So, you know, I'm in two minds about it because I guess if I had a, a business or a charity that had a stake in a gambling decision, you might want to know about the background of a public servant uh, like this. Um, but, Morning Report actually raised this issue of whether it was fair to do this. Um, Guy Nesper, it was on Monday's Morning Report. Uh, put the question to the veteran journalism educator, Jim Tully.
0: There's an irony, I guess, in people who are Voices for Freedom being um, much less transparent than uh, we would like them to be. But, I mean, it's the same issues we had when we talked about the Kauranga MP. You know, people are entitled to know who they're voting for, what they stand for, what affiliations they might have, and particularly what they stand for. Do you reckon it's a fair comparison to make with uh, National Party and Sam
1: Muffindale? Well, I thought that was a different situation, really. That was someone standing as, as a candidate for a party. So I wasn't sure I agreed entirely with uh, Jim Tully's comparison there. But uh, then reading that same issue of the Sunday Star Times last weekend, they have a story about um, that uh, rural movement, Groundswell. And they're saying that there are candidates standing around the country that have might have taken a role with them when they had their howl of protest last year that you might remember. And they're claiming they don't back anyone for local elections. And they're concerned that, um, you know, people with fringe and anti-vax views have kind of grabbed bound themselves onto groundswell and are claiming groundswell allegiance in their candidacy. So they're trying to sort of keep a distance from some of these. So it is it is getting awkward. And I guess that's an aspect I hadn't really thought about, that some community groups and possibly even political parties, they might well be want, want to be aware of the things in the background that the media are now digging into of local candidates because, you know, it could, um, it could end up affecting their reputations as well.
0: And just finally, just a quick comment, uh, Colin, because I know that you must have a story about this from the BBC, but 25 years ago today, the early hours of the 31st of August 1997, Diana Princess of Wales died uh, from the car accident in Paris.
1: Where where were you at the time? (laughs) (laughs) I was squirming in my seat. I was a newbie at the BBC's um, Radio 5 Live, which is their only sort of national 24 hour news network. And uh, yeah, it was my second shift and they put you on the overnight programme. So if you mess up only insomniacs and sort of truck drivers hear it. Yeah, my second night producing and uh, there was an, an alert came through Reuters about Diana getting injured and then the whole night we had to keep the programme going uh, and we were the only national BBC network up. The TV and the other radio networks, the TV switches off at night, uh, or did back then, and the radio, main radio network switched into um, World Service, so we were, we were the only game in town. After the reports of her injury, it was a full, I think, almost five hours before she was actually declared dead. And we had to keep the program going with one presenter all night long while trying not to make any serious mistakes. And the thing I do remember is that there was all this procedure. We used to rehearse royal deaths on the assumption it would be probably the the Queen Mother and that everything would be quite stately. And there was a whole series of things you had to do. But for a, a breaking news thing like this, everything went out the window and we had all these phone numbers to call from the director general right to the top all the way down to these these other editors. And it was a Saturday night into a Sunday morning um, over there in, in the UK and we rang everything. We rang their homes, their pages, their Cotswolds holiday homes. None of them got back to us and this is before. I mean a lot of people had mobiles but nothing like the networks we have now where everyone would know very very shortly but we went through almost the whole night without anyone senior ever getting back to us until actually carrying the live announcement of her death at I think at about quarter to five in the morning Um, and then handing over to a network programme that went out on all five uh, national BBC radio networks at once that had never been done before and um, we weren't even sure it was going to work so as we handed over this programme at 5am all the needles came up and all the networks suddenly came to life and it had actually worked and then we all sort of collapsed in a heap but it was by far the most stressful experience um, (laughs) that I've been involved in uh, in a newsroom because yeah, keeping that going for five hours without being able to say anything definitively was terrible.
0: Yeah, and the world, you know, depending on the time difference, of course. But England woke up that morning, and they couldn't quite believe it, could they? No, well,
1: I I went home on the tube at about six in the morning, just feeling shattered. And people on the tube knew nothing about it. And of course, a few years later, with you know more mobiles and then the net and everything that came with it, everyone would have known with an an instant. But it was remarkable just going home like normal uh, and and uh, tuning out or trying to. Um, Nobody knew. Just incredible. But yeah, different times.